0: there's this little group of people over there never mind yeah don't you let's pray father god thank you for the fact that you didn't leave us here to try and figure out life but you sent your son to make it clear and i pray that you'd help us to clearly see that today in christ's name amen a few years ago, uh, two of my sisters, actually only have two, so both my sisters <laughs> came over to visit us when we were living in Philadelphia, and they came in the fall by design. I wanted them to see the fall colors, and so we took a trip up from Philadelphia. We went up, if you ever want to do it, you follow Highway 7 up into New England, and it's a most amazing trip. You've got to go about the second week of October to catch the, 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 the leaves as they've turned, and it's the most amazing experience. If you've never done it, you need to do it. And you, you, you drive and you see all the beauty around you. You stop and you have hot cider at, at a, you know, roadside places. And, oh, it, and you stay at bed and breakfasts. Do not go to a motel, okay? You're not allowed to go to a hotel or motel. You've got to go to a bed and breakfast so that you have the full experience of what it's like to be in New England during that time. Well, it so happened that one of the days was extra bright and I didn't have any sunglasses. So when we stopped at a place, I went in and I bought a pair of sunglasses. Um, They were called Amber Vision. Do you remember they used to advertise them on TV, the Amber Vision uh, sunglasses, because they reduce glare? And so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll get them. And I needed to get a pair big enough to be able to put them over my glasses so that I could keep seeing where we were going while we did it. But here's what's happened. We're driving through and seeing all these beautiful reds and gold and stuff like that, and then I put on the amber vision, and all of a sudden, fall turned into spring. (laughs) It was the most amazing thing that what happened is that the lenses changed the color of everything. So everything yellow turned pink, and everything red went purple. And all of a sudden, instead of looking at the fall, I was looking at spring. And so I handed around the car, and each of them had a turn to do it, and they are all going, oh, my gosh, that's incredible how it changed. So I said, I'm going to start a business, and my business will be two seasons in one trip. <laughs> and you can come, and I'll charge you, and I guarantee that you're going to see fall and you're going to see spring all at the same time. We live in a world where when we look around us, we see jihadists, we see global warming, we see people committing atrocious senseless murders all around us and we think about the message of Christmas that peace on earth is coming and we look at this world and we have to admit that you know what there's not much peace even though Jesus came there is not much peace in this world there's a lot of suffering but the reason why we may despair about that or what may cause us to despair is we have to put on the lenses of scripture to see the whole picture Because you see, as you read the Bible, you discover that there are two comings of Jesus Christ. The first time he came, he came as the Lamb of God to give his life, to take the punishment for our sins. The next time he comes, he's coming as the Lion of God to bring in his kingdom. And James writing to people who are going through suffering, the Apostle James wanted to encourage them. He knew the difficulties of their lives. These were people who were suffering from the normal frustration, frustrating difficulties of life. They were people who were suffering from persecution, not only from the, the, the authorities around them, but from Jews around them who were persecuting them because they were now becoming followers of Jesus Christ. And as a result, their lives were fairly miserable at this point in time, live, living hand to mouth they also had the problem of being exploited by wealthy people, who would who would not pay them their wages, or who would throw them in a jail, and it was just a, a terrible experience. And James is writing to them to encourage them, and to make sure that they understand that this world is not God's final product, and that there is a new day coming. Right now, as we look at the world, winter is coming, and we can see winter around us, but there's a day coming when there's going to be eternal spring. And so James wants to lift their spirits, and he wants to lift our spirits as well. And he does so by pointing out to them that it is true that Jesus is coming again. Now, as you read the scriptures, you discover that there are over 40 prophecies about the life of Jesus Christ. And as you study those prophecies, now wake up and listen to this very carefully, they're transparent, they're specific, they're clear. A lot of people make prophecies of the future and they're like, you know, like it may happen like this, it may happen. You find all of these Nostradamus, when he predicted the future, it was kind of like, and you're like, oh, it could be applying here, oh, it could be applying there, you know, it was just all fuzzy nonsense. But when the Bible predicted the coming of Jesus Christ, it was clear, it was transparent, it was specific. And all of those, many of them have already come true. It, it prophesied that he would be born of a virgin. Come on, how many people are born of virgins in this world? That he would be born specifically in Bethlehem. He would spend his childhood in Egypt. (sighs) He would come out of Egypt. How could anybody have figured out and guessed that ahead of time? That he would be born uh, of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. That he would be called out of Egypt. All of these are prophecies in the scripture. That he would perform healings and miracles when he was a grown man. That there would be a day when he would enter into Jerusalem and be welcomed by the people as the king. And last week we covered the fact that God revealed through the same angel, Gabriel, who came to, to Mary. The angel Gabriel had told the prophet Daniel 600 years beforehand the specific day in which Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Did you guys hear that? In Daniel chapter 9, you go read it very carefully. God specifically told that prophet when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and that he would be killed days afterwards. It's a most amazing thing. Sometime when, when, when I've got more time, I'll actually show you. We know the date from which the, 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 the prediction started and exactly 483 years as God said to the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Crystal clear fulfillment of it. That he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That he would be rejected, beaten, and crucified. Isaiah 52 and 53 covers that. That his garments would be divided when he was on the cross. He would be given vinegar to drink. That none of his bones would be broken. And that he would rise from the dead. All of it is there. And all of it came true precisely as God predicted it would come true. But then part of the prediction hasn't come true yet. Read with me. Okay? Isaiah 9, 6. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Notice that there were predictions about the coming of Jesus that came true exactly. But then there was this prediction, which we often read around the Christmas time. It hasn't happened. He is not governing this world and bringing eternal peace everywhere. It hasn't happened yet. But it is going to happen because as you read the scriptures, we're told that Jesus is coming again. In fact, Jesus himself said this. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Jesus said, I'm telling you that in the future, I'll be coming back. And when I come back, I won't be coming as a little baby born in a stable in Bethlehem, hidden from all of the world. When I come back, the entire world will see my arrival, and they will mourn. Isn't that interesting? That the world will not be going, Yes! Here, Jesus, come back. Hallelujah. They won't. They will mourn at that time because they will realize he told the truth. He's actually here. He's coming back. Now, the scriptures know that we're going to be going, oh, come on. How can we believe in this? Here's how we can believe in it. If all the predictions that led up to, that have been fulfilled, were precisely correct and direct, that means the future predictions also can be 100% trusted. This world is not all there is. This world is the manufacturing process of an eternal world to come. And that eternal world will come into existence when Jesus Christ returns. 483 years to the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But Daniel was told that from the time that decree was issued way back by by Xerxes, or what Xerxes, forget which Xerxes it was, (laughs) From the day that that prediction was made, 483 years came true. But he was told that it would be 490 years until the new kingdom comes in. Seven years difference. And as you read in the New Testament, the New Testament dis- describes actually the book of Daniel 2, that there's a seven-year hell on earth out there in the future. And that seven-year hell on earth will just precede the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's funny, Anytime time I mention this, people go, bla, 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 bla. I don't want to hear this, I don't want to hear this, I don't want to hear this. I firmly believe we're going to be here. There's going to be a generation of believers here on earth when those seven years of hell happen. And we need to be ready. We need to be strong. We need to be prepared for those seven years of hell, which will end when Jesus Christ comes and takes us to himself. So all of this sounds like like Hollywood, sounds like something people have invented. The Spirit of God knew that. And so he wrote to us through Peter. He said, first of all, you must understand it. In the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, say, where is this coming? He promised. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is no, not slow in keeping his promise, as Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the point of like a thief is unexpectedly. He will come and we won't be ready unless we've prepared ourselves. All right, so you awaken with me there? We're living in a period of time between year 483 and the final seven years. Paul explains in the book of Ephesians that that was part of God's plan all along, but it was not a plan that he revealed until after Jesus had ascended to heaven, and we're living in that period of time when God, in His patience, is building His kingdom. He's calling people into His kingdom to inhabit the world to come. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, don't waste another day of your life. Put your faith in Jesus Christ so that you'll be prepared and you will get to live in that new world when it comes. So now we go back to the Apostle James. Remember, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, didn't believe in Jesus till he saw Him after the resurrection. And then he wrote what we think was probably the first letter to the new churches that were springing up all over the world. And he says to them, Jesus is coming again. So be patient and persevere. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. He doesn't feel any sense of, I need to prove to you, I need to explain it to you. He just says, Jesus said he's coming again. We know he's coming again. And he says, be patient. You're going to watch it. There's those two words, be patient and persevere. To be patient means to be long-suffering. And to be long-suffering was usually used in relationship. It says we need to understand that while we're waiting for Jesus to come, there's going to be an unbelievable amount of stress on us. And we're going to have to learn to be patient with one another and, amazingly, even with those who persecute us during this time. But being patient means to be long-suffering, to be willing to hang in there with people way beyond what ordinary human beings can do. And the reason we can do it is because we have the Spirit of God. And it's interesting, and we've been noticing that in the, in the letter of James. He writes to people, and he tells us to do things that are supernatural. They're way more difficult for ordinary human beings to do. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, He's given you His Spirit. And by the power of His Spirit, we can be and must be people who are entirely different from others. And one of the marks is that we're patient. So he helps us to develop patience by using some illustrations. He says, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. In uh, in, uh, that part of the world the rains were significantly important. The autumn rains, which would come in September, October, would soften the ground and prepare the ground for the planting of the seeds. And then, just like San Diego, there'd be no more rain for a while. But the seeds would be growing. And then, as they grew, as the the crop grew, eventually the spring rains would come. And the spring rains would now hasten the end of the harvest, and they would bring the harvest in. And what a farmer would have to do is, he planted his seed, he'd have to wait. Ever planted seed? Ever notice that? You don't put it in the ground and go, Chow-whoa. there it is. Ta-da. I got my tree, whatever I planted. It takes time. Remember as a kid, we, we put um, beans into cotton wool and, and put them in water, and then you got to watch it. <laughs> I remember the frustration of coming every day and looking at that stuff in the bottle like, would you please do something, you know? <laughs> Come on. And then eventually you see this little root go, ee. And then this little root creeps down and then a little thing comes up. It takes forever. And he's saying, okay, understand that, okay? Farmers know. You can stand and stare at your field all you like. It's not going to hasten the growth of the harvest. You've got to learn to be patient. And trust God that he's going to send the rains when the time is right. The first rains have come. Jesus came to earth. The next rains will come when he comes again. And so be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. The word stand firm means reinforce your soul, reinforce your spirit. I've been in several buildings where after they had built it, the walls on the outside began to bow, and so they had to run steel bars through, and you've probably seen places like this, where they had to run steel bars through from wall to wall, and then tighten them up in order to to reinforce those walls so that they can stand. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, drive up into St. Louis Hills and go to the gas station. And at the gas station, take a look at the overhang outside the door to the, to the gas station, and you'll see those kind of steel rods there. Now, they weren't retrofitted. They were put in place to make it look old. Okay? But that's, that's the whole idea. And he says, listen, understand that in this long period of time between the comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, life is tough. And so you need to strengthen yourself. Be, build that reinforcement inside of you so that you can endure without frustration the weight. And that's part of what we have to learn in life. There's all kinds of things that will invade our lives that will make it difficult. He says, be patient. He says, also, be patient with one another. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Jesus is saying, you're my people, okay? Okay. And if you grumble against one another, you're going to answer to me. And I'm standing at the door. And so be aware. He said one of the things, the ways the world will know that we are followers of his is when they see the supernatural love that God's people have for one another and the way in which they're able to be patient with one another, to go the extra mile, to not get frustrated when they move the Christmas tree to that side. It's like, oh, are you kidding? The Christmas tree is supposed to be this side. Why did you move it to that side? <laughs> Just because. <laughs> I remember in a meeting, one of our elders rebuked one of my staff members. Not here, previous church. One of the elders rebuked one of my staff members. And the staff right in front of entire we had a board of 24 elders. Can you be how ridiculous as I was? But still, right in front of the whole board. And that staff member put his hands on the desk and he said, sir, You may disagree with what I did. But you cannot attack my motives. You don't know why I did what I did. So let me tell you my motive. And boy did he embarrass that guy. In front of everybody. My motive was pure. You may not like what I did. But here's what my motive was. And the grumbling and complaining. And stuff like that. Jesus said it doesn't belong. By the way we did it. Because we used to have people do the reading. For the the candle. Then they'd have to walk. Oh way over there to go light the candle so we said let's just put the candle closer to them doesn't that make sense all in favor say aye thank you (laughs) (laughs) and he's warning that while we wait for jesus to come life is tough and we're going to be bumping against one another relationally we're going to have to work our way through things and he says don't grumble don't complain don't be in a place where, where you're behaving just like ordinary human beings treat one another with incredible grace And he says, all right, let me give you an example. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. The prophets were persecuted by their own people. The prophets came to them to say, listen, God wants to bless you. In order for you to be blessed, here's what you have to do. So what did the people do? Did they say, oh, okay, we'll do what you're telling us to do so we can be blessed? No, they shut the prophets up. They would attack them. Jeremiah was one of the, he's called the weeping prophet, because that poor man wept so often from the way he was treated by God's people. They threw him into a cistern. They threw him into prison. They beat him. It was just amazing what they did to that that poor prophet. And he was trying to speak on God's behalf to them to make their lives better. But they didn't want to change. They didn't want anything like that. In fact, we're often like that. You notice that? It's like Jesus coming again. Oh, just don't come on Monday night football, okay? (laughs) Okay. Don't, don't interrupt. I want I not like my life. Don't interrupt what I'm doing right now. He says, an example of patience in the face of suffering. Those prophets continued to speak. They continued to deliver God's word, even though they were being persecuted by their own people. And then sometimes he says, it's not people who bring trouble into our life, but life. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The book of Job is one of the scariest books in the Bible. Isn't that true? So in order for us to understand what the book of Job is about, here's what it was about. God wanted to demonstrate, and it's weird, there seems to be a heavenly, of some kind, supernatural behind-the-scenes courtroom. And in that courtroom, God is present, of course, but in that courtroom, Satan is present as well. And Satan is constantly accusing those who are followers of God, of their immorality, to prove to God that that we don't deserve his love. And he's constantly accusing. He's the accuser before God. And in Job's case, he came to God and he said, of course he worships you. Of course he loves you. Look how wealthy he is. Look at his big family. Of course he worships you. But I bet if you took all that away, he would curse you. Now, don't be terrified. I don't think God's going, hmm... Let me see if Raymond can go through this too. Job is an an extreme example. And what you find that Job lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. He ended up with friends. And by the way, when you read the book of Job, as you read through it, realize that his friends were wrong. They kept telling him, you've done something wrong, Job. There's something you've done and God is punishing you. Job teaches us that no. Sometimes life Brings difficulty in our way. Sometimes our health fails. Sometimes we lose our finances. Sometimes there's, there's, we lose our family members. It's not always, you can't say God is punishing me. Because in Job's case, that was not true at all. And his friends were dead wrong. They kept saying to him, you've done something wrong. That's why God is punishing you. And it wasn't true. He had a wife who was telling him to commit suicide. Come on. Just, you know, God's abandoned you, abandoned life, Commit suicide, and he refused. He did get to the place where he finally said to God, what's going on? And the last chapters of Job, you've got to go read them. They're beautiful. Oh, you've got to read them. God says to him, basically, this is, Job, when you can run a universe, I will explain to you what I'm doing. And those beautiful verses, and he finally, at the end of it, Job says, all right, I get it. I I shut my mouth, God, and I trust you. And he did. He never turned his back on God. He persevered, he persevered, he persevered. And at the end, God rewarded him. Enormous recovery of more than his wealth before, a greater family that he had in the end. In his case, that's what God did. But that story is there to tell us, that understand that when you go through life, you're going to face difficulties. And it's amazing how often somebody is sick and they're going, why has God abandoned me? He hasn't. We're in a broken world. We get sick. Okay? The the, the guys on TV who promise, if you've got faith, then you will never get sick and you'll be wealthy the rest of your lives. Just wait. That guy's going to get sick someday. We won't mention his name. (laughs) But one of those guys preaches prosperity. If you've got faith, then you'll have health and wealth all the way. But he wears glasses. Hello? Hello? God not healed your eyes, and He was actually preaching once where He had a, a, a finger. finger splint, He broke his finger. Like, Hello, are you thinking? Eventually, all of these faith guys die, just like the rest of us. God has not promised that if you've got enough faith, you will always be healthy and wealthy uh, in this world. No, Jesus said, In this world, you will have trouble. It's one of the difficulties that will come your way. I had a little girl come to me, she was probably 12 or 13 come up to me once and she was on dialysis and she had the permanent shunts in her arm and she said can you tell me why god won't heal me and i was like oh oh wait what what she said i've gone forward in my church over and over again and god won't heal me and the leaders of my church told me because i don't have enough faith oh yeah come back next week and you'll see what james has to say to those kind of leaders because what James says, is any of you sick, let him call the elders. Let them come pray. And the prayer of the elders will make the sick person well. That to be able to... Now, thank God I knew that verse. I could say to her, do you understand? That it's not because you don't have faith. Okay? If anybody is at fault, it's your pastor and his elders. They're the ones who were at fault. And they are going to answer to the judge because he's at the door. He's going to take it to them. Do you understand that? Job went through unbelievable suffering. Not because God was punishing him, but because in his case, God was allowing him to be tested and he never, ever turned away from God. He persevered all the way through. And James is saying, be the same. You're going to go through trouble. You're going to lose your health. You're going to lose your wealth. You're going to lose family members. And in the middle of all of this, just understand that God is compassion, full of compassion and mercy. Always. Here's the thing to understand. If God were to always bail us out, This world would be an entirely different place every time we did something wrong or something went wrong in our life. If every time we prayed, God had to go, all right, let's shift the world, let's shift the world, let's shift the world. There's a sense in which there's some things God cannot do. Isn't that a scary statement? There's some things God cannot do because he created this world as it is. And if he would constantly change the world every time we prayed, we'd have Christians who are hundreds of years old. Because as soon as somebody was getting close to death, they'd go, God, heal me. And he'd have to go, all right. And he'd have to heal us. So if God had to, that, that's not the, the, the system in, uh, that he's structured in this world. We do pray for one another. And that's we're going go to go into in more in depth next week. We do pray for one another when somebody's sick or struggling like that. And lots of times God in his compassion and mercy does intervene, but not all the time. And we should be gracious and thankful when he does. So he says, you've heard of Job's trouble. And then he says, above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear. Not by heaven or earth, or by anything else. All you need to, know is a, need, need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. He's basically telling us, be real. In order to prove that they were spiritual in those days, people would swear by heaven. They'd swear by God. They'd swear by my mother. They'd swear by this. And he's saying, don't do that. You should be such a genuine follower after me that you don't have to make any kind of oath, any kind of swearing. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to swear in, in, in uh, the courtroom, by the way. That's another matter entirely. It means that you don't... To prove that you're really genuine, you don't have to say, I tell you the truth or I swear by. Don't do that, he said. Be real. In fact, the whole book of James, somebody gave it its title, Be Real. The world doesn't need fake people running around pretending to be something else. The world needs people who are the genuine thing. And this morning, as we close our worship service, we're going to come to the communion table. And the fascinating thing about the communion table is it makes a statement about the coming of Jesus. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we come to the table, we look back in time to the fact that Jesus took the punishment for our sins and died in our place. When we come to the table, we remember the fact that Jesus is here, present with us. And when we come to the table, we look forward to his coming again one day. I want to show you one of my most precious possessions in all the world. When my house catches fire, this is the first thing I grab. When my daughter Mandy was due to arrive on earth, we went to Lamar's classes. Remember Lamar's? And in Lamar's they said, you need to have something that you will, f- to, my, to her mother, not me, I was fine, their mother, <laughs> <laughs> you need to have something to focus on so that when you're going through contractions, it helps to distract you and helps you to think about the joy to come. And so she took the colored wool and she made this beautiful little woolen ball. And that's what we took with us into the, the room while her mother was giving birth to Mandy. Notice that. Focus on something that tells you of the joy to come. She also made one for my son, but it fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all that's left of, of, of Ryan. <laughs> and just wasn't touched. But do you see, this? this is not Mandy and Ryan. But what it speaks about is a time when there was pain, when there was blood, and when there was a new birth and there was joy to come. And the beauty about it is this is not just a reminder of Mandy because Mandy's right here this morning. My daughter's present with us. And so the Lord's table is like this. It's a time we come together and the elements help us to think back to the blood and to the pain and the suffering of Jesus Christ in order to bring new birth for us but we come to the table and we remember that Jesus is here. He's in this room by his spirit, but he is here. And when we come to the table, we look forward to his second coming, that he's going to be coming back soon. And so when we come to the table, we invite everyone who believes in Jesus to come and join us at the table. We serve today, we are serving you the elements where you are, seated where you are. And the way we do it is that once you receive the bread, go ahead and eat it. If you've personally accepted Christ as your savior, eat it individually. And it's a statement of just as I take this bread into my mouth, I have taken Jesus into my soul. I have committed my life to him. Then we will serve you the the cups and we ask you to hold them and we'll drink them all together. But what the communion table does is it gives us a tangible, visible statement of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. The Bible tells us that God so loves us that he sent his son in order to reconnect us to him. We were created to live for eternity in relationship with God, but we rebelled against God. And once we rebelled against God, we brought sin and death upon ourselves. In order to reconcile us, sin and death had to be taken away. And so Jesus took our sin and he became culpable for the sin of every human being when he was crucified. As he hung on that cross, he took the the, the responsibility for all of our sins upon himself and he was punished as a substitute in our place. Then he was buried, and he came back from the dead in order to offer us the gift of eternal life. And if you've never yet put your faith in Jesus, it's so simple. There's no ritual. There's no mumbo-jumbo, nothing at all. It's person to person. God simply says, up until now, you've been God of your own life. I want Jesus to be God of your life. And if you let him become God of your life, he will give you life everlasting And you will join him in his new kingdom. If you've never yet accepted Christ as your Savior, I beg you to do that this morning. And once you have, we invite everybody to join us. This is the Lord's table. And the Apostle Paul says that when we come to this table, we mustn't treat it in a way that is, we treat it like a throwaway thing. We must be aware that it's a very serious time that we come together. And also specifically to be aware that if there's a relationship that you need to fix in this world, that communion is designed to get you to the place where spiritually you commit to doing that. It doesn't mean you have to run up now and go and reconcile with somebody because too many of you would run up here to deal with me. It, it means that spiritually you get yourself to the place where you say, all right, I need to go and reconcile with so-and-so. And you come to the table as part of that preparation. So let's prepare our hearts and our light before we come to the table. Let's pray together. If you've never yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's a very, very simple personal transaction. You may want to just quietly in your heart say to God, Jesus, I don't fully understand everything, but I hear that you came to earth to take the punishment for my sins. And that after you were buried, you rose again to offer forgiveness and to offer eternal life. It was you who said, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, Jesus, right now, I believe in you. And I thank you that now that I've done it, you said, truly, truly, I say to you, the person who believes has everlasting life. And for all of us now who have put our faith in Jesus, spend just a moment. If there's anything you need to confess, if there's anything, any issue you need to clear between you and the Lord, go ahead and do that right now.